Do you remember Carol Baskin, the star of that pandemic Netflix hit, Tiger King? (sighs) Have a happy catty birthday, Dan. Yeah, that was your brother Tom's idea. (laughs) You guys been putting up with each other your whole lives, no doubt, man, that's your brothers. But Tom wanted to wish you a tiger-rific birthday and wanted me to channel my inner tiger. That's Baskin wishing my colleague Tom Faber's brother a very catty birthday. When it came time for Tom to get his brother a gift, he had this inspired idea to get on an app called Cameo. Cameo lets you pay celebrities for personalized messages for your loved ones. And Baskin, she nailed it. I asked her to read out the names of all the cats my brother had ever owned in his life. Skips, Midnight, Fizz, and Chomsky. Of course, they are all still here with you and looking over both of you to this very day. (laughs) And when he saw that, he was just shrieking with laughter, just to feel known obscurely by someone from your television is a really strange sort of postmodern thrill. Cameo launched in 2017 pretty unsuccessfully, but during the pandemic, it exploded. There are now more than 50,000 celebrities on the site. And for Tom, it marks this shift in what it means to be a celebrity. Do you remember when celebrities were impossible to reach? They were more like idols. They were like our Greek gods, messy but glamorous and untouchable. People were selling their used tissues on eBay for thousands of dollars. But now, interacting with a celebrity is just one Instagram comment or cameo away. And the level of celebrity has changed, too. You can have just 25,000 followers, and Cameo will deem you famous. This week, we look at how Cameo reflects our shifting understanding of fame. And later, I talk to our design columnist, Luke Edward Hall, about how to make a home really feel like yours. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Tom Faber is our gaming critic. He recently wrote a piece about Cameo for the FT Weekend magazine. Cameo gave Tom some credit so he could try it, hence the Carol Baskin clip. I've put his piece in the show notes. Tom, thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me back. Can we start with just what it is? What is Cameo? How does it work? So Cameo is an app that allows people to pay celebrities directly to record short, personalized video messages for them. I think the average price is something like $100. Mm -hmm. Um, But it depends. It can be like $2. And it can go all the way up to, I think, Caitlyn Jenner is $2,500 for a two-minute video. Yeah. I went on and the people who were suggested to me, or at least suggested to Americans, were Lance Bass of the famed NSYNC, uh, Gabby Douglas, the gymnast, And then there were like groups, right? Like B and C list cast members of Harry Potter, of The Office, a lot of niche celebrities. Yeah. And niche is kind of the territory where Cameo operates and makes most of its money. No megastars are on the platform. I think the point of the app is more that you get a message from the exact B lister that your friend is really crazy about. And that that will mean the world to them. The first time I heard of Cameo was on Instagram. 
A friend of mine had posted a birthday message he'd received from Michael Rappaport. You know, the guy who was Phoebe's cop boyfriend on Friends and the dad in Atypical. He's been in literally about a hundred things. And what stood out most was the message was very detailed. He was saying eerily specific things about my friend. And Tom says that's part of the magic of Cameo. It's that when you commission a video, it asks you for something specific and interesting about the recipient. So that allows for these moments where suddenly a celebrity knows really strange, intimate things about you, (laughs) which I think is a lot of the joy um, of receiving the videos. To learn how Cameo got started, Tom met with two of its three founders, Stephen Galanis and Martin Blenko. Martin is the talent agent, and he's kind of a Hollywood character himself. While Stephen Galanis does the business end, Martin's job is to sort of sidle up to celebrities and try and convince them to join Cameo. Um, (laughs) Just he looks exactly like the kind of person who has that job. You know, (laughs) he's got this sort of slightly unrealistically golden tan, big muscles, you know, super fashionably dressed. And he managed to name drop at least 30 celebrities in the sort of 45 minutes that I spent <laughs> with him. So these two got together and the, the nugget of an idea that spawned Cameo, according to Stephen Galanis, was that the selfie is the new autograph. And that right. when you meet a celebrity, you ask for a selfie. No one carries around a, a pen and paper for an autograph anymore. And uh, he thought, well, what if we could create a tech platform that could stand in this new and evolving space that the internet is creating between celebrities and their fans. My question is how they convince celebrities to join. I mean, you said that he seems like the kind of guy who would who would have this job. And I'm just trying to imagine why celebrities are doing it. I mean, like, you know, $80, $100 is not a lot of money for their time. So are they expecting it to be shared like the Michael Rappaport video was shared and now I'm thinking about Michael Rappaport and now I'm talking about it on my podcast and now (laughs) thousands of more people are thinking about Michael Rappaport. And now the Michael Rappaport cinematic (laughs) universe continues to expand ever outwards. Exactly. Um, Well, (laughs) it's changed, I think. And and to the point that $80, $100 is not a lot for a celebrity. I mean, recording a cameo video is literally one and a half minutes work. Yeah. So $100 for one and a half minutes is is a decent earning. And uh, I did some sort of calculations on the back of a napkin for some of the biggest Cameo users. And one of the biggest who's called James Buckley, and he is um, uh actor and comedian from the British TV show, The Inbetweeners. Mm-hmm. He did 10,000 Cameo videos oh my God. in 2020. <laughs> And I worked out that that was probably sort of about like an hour a day. And that would have earned him more than a quarter of a million pounds. Wow. Um, So you can earn serious money from it. But most people don't. And I think for most celebrities, the reason they use Cameo is is to connect with their fans. On the surface, then, it feels like the platform is a win-win for both fans and celebrities. It gives fans a chance to connect and celebrities a way to maintain and build their pool of superfans. But it's the mercenary quality to the app that can feel uncomfortable. You go onto the website and you see all these famous people listed with prices underneath them. It's explicitly transactional. I mean, I think that the thing that makes me feel weird about Cameo is that there's something sort of embarrassing about 
like seeing the actual monetary value put on these people's time, especially when it's less than you expect. I mean, even if it's a minute and a half of their time, it's still relatively affordable. So you're upset that your celebrities are too cheap? (laughs) (laughs) Sort of. (laughs) I think so. I saw almost like I'm used to celebrities being inaccessible. So the idea that they can be accessible to one person like that me, a random person, is worth their time, like goes against my whole understanding of celebrity. Mm, but I think celebrity is changing. I know. It's, it's an old-fashioned way to think about celebrity. Yeah, and I definitely found that my, my old-fashioned understanding of celebrity came up into conflict a lot with Cameo and the way Cameo works. Um, yeah, my favorite quote from your piece, uh, which I'm going to embarrass you by reading, is uh, it was only after spending time on the app that I got to the heart of what was making me uneasy. Cameo strips away the glamour, however faded, and reveals celebrity culture for what it truly is and has always been a product. This transparency may be unpalatable, but it's preferable to the blurry ethics around branded posts on celebrities' Instagram accounts, where the constant performance of authenticity means it can be hard to tell where real life ends and advertising begins. Yeah, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable to see people with a price tag under them. But I think something that I realized as well talking to celebrities is that's always been what their lives are like. You know, when they're paid to perform concerts, to act in shows, even as speakers. And you can get these books where it just has long lists of celebrities and how much they all cost. You know, it's just we've never been able to see these numbers before. And that's what makes us uncomfortable. Right. But celebrities today are in a position where they feel compelled to keep up their social media. They feel like they need to share their personal life online or they're going to become irrelevant. So you see content creators doing amounts of work that I'm sure are illegal under most (laughs) countries' labor laws, trying to constantly turn every part of their life into content. It just seems completely exhausting, Mm. you know? Did writing this story change your mind about Cameo? It made me understand why the app is successful. And... I was surprised that no matter what sort of critical angle I tried to come at the app from, it sort of resisted all of my criticisms. I mean, what I learned is that it really works. You know, Cameo is expanding really rapidly. And I think it had seemed like super fans and stans were the reserve of the Taylor Swifts of the world. Uh, Stan, if you don't know, is 2000 slang for an obsessive fan. But part of what Cameo is trying to do is to say, hey, you, C-lister from some average Netflix show, you can have stands too, and you Mm. can make good money out of them. Stephen Galanis referred to this theory by an investor called Lee Jin, who wrote that any creator in the present day only needs 100 super fans who will pay $1,000 a year on whatever they make, and they can make a great living. And I think increasingly celebrities are seeing that this is an easier route to making a good living than spreading themselves too thin. I mean, you see it in journalism on people leaving big media outlets to go to Substack. Yeah, and there's definitely a connection between Cameo and those other platforms, Substack, Patreon, OnlyFans, Mm -hmm. uh, Bandcamp, all of these parts of the 
creator economy, as they call it, who are trying to enable creators to sell directly to their audience. My last question is just, what do you think this story is really about? I mean, it's about this app, but more broadly, what did you leave feeling like it it was about? Something that I kept thinking about while I was writing the piece was how the internet has allowed celebrities to seem more like normal people and Mm -hmm. for normal people to more easily become celebrities. And how all of these tech platforms are bringing everyone closer together and blurring a lot of boundaries in a way that seems really exciting at first, but also brings up a lot of ethical and financial questions that it feels like people aren't paying as much attention to. Mm. And I think that's why we get these uncomfortable, unsettled feelings with some of these new services. What Tom is saying is suddenly people who would never have been considered a celebrity in the past can build a small following. If people are fans of this show, I might seem famous to them. But I'm not famous. And I'm a fan of this niche Armenian food writer. To me, she seems famous. So it's all becoming a micro-celebrity soup. And these micro-celebrities, we often don't have PR machines guiding us or protecting us. But we create content for a living. So building a following for our work, it matters to our careers. It allows us to make more work. So the ethical questions that Tom is alluding to, they're things like, you know, personally, where is the line for how much of my life I post on Instagram for you to see? And on the company side, how dedicated is Instagram to supporting me as a content creator? What if they change their mind or change their algorithm and my small following has no more value? There's a new gatekeeper, which is the tech company, which is facilitating all of this. And Mm -hmm. I think it's very easy to imagine that any of these platforms that are getting huge amounts of people to rely on them completely for making a living could change their mind at any point according to some abstract ideas of ethics or morality. And then a whole bunch of people are screwed. That's a really good point. Well, Tom, thank you. It's been fascinating. And uh, I really appreciate you being on the show. Yeah, no, I'm a stan of this podcast. So happy (laughs) anytime. And I'm waiting for you to appear on Cameo as well. Oh, God, no, not anytime soon. We go now from something unattainable to something that should be under our control. Our homes how we make them feel like they're part of us. Especially in an age when we rent and move and get a new job and move again. Should we even try? Good question. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, our our homes are so much to us. and It's somewhere that you're safe and you're with the people that you love. And I think it makes sense to make it as as beautiful as possible and as cozy and, and comfortable, but also not just that. Like, I think our homes can also inspire us and can also reflect back our personalities and our interests. That's Luke Edward Hall, an interior designer and a columnist for the FT Weekend section House and Home. Luke's weekly column, I don't want to read it as much as I want to drink it. It's like a really good cocktail. You know, it's like delicate, it's colorful, it has a bit of a bite, it goes down really easy. Luke is well known outside of the FT as an artist and designer. He's collaborated with brands like Gaunt, Gucci, and Burberry, 
He's got a hotel he designed in Paris. But what I like about the column is that it isn't for people who are designing hotels. It's for people like you and me. And sure, Luke may do this for a living, but often he's looking at his own home and working out what to do with it, too. That was the case when we spoke. He had just finished redesigning his flat in London. And what does it look like? What what have you done to it? What have we done? We've, we've sort of, um, basically, we have a little flat and we, it's a one bedroom flat and we haven't done too much work to the living room. We painted our kitchen. We got new curtains and, and bits and pieces, but we did a lot of work to the other rooms. So we completely changed our hallway, put up a new wallpaper. And we also got some murals commissioned for the hallway. So um, we got someone in to paint all the woodwork to look like marble. Oh, cool. She also did some um, kind of murals of a statue and an urn um, on our cupboard doors. It's, it's a lot. You can read Luke's thoughts on indoor murals in a column he wrote last month. I've put it in the show notes. There's another one on sculptures, on bedside tables, on outdoor furniture. The columns can get pretty detailed. So today I wanted to bring you Luke's overall golden rules for making a home you love living in. Luke calls them his design principles, but they're not prescriptive. They're really meant to help you connect with your space and figure out what you like. I mean, number one, I would say for me is juxtaposition and like mm. the, the mix. And I mean, it was Nancy Lancaster, the designer, who said one of her principal rules was um, never sticking with slavishly to one period. I mean, it's unsuccessful to do that. Yeah. And and I love that. I mean, I love mixing mixing furniture from different periods and accessories from different periods. You know, I think that's what, for me, creates a really exciting interior is having, you mm-hmm. know, maybe an antique console table within a kind of 1970s lamp. But I also like contemporary design. And I think it's about how you mix things together. I should say here that Luke's style is pretty maximalist. There's a link in the show notes. Think striped wallpaper, calico lampshades, jugs overflowing with flowers. His bathroom is mint green, walls and ceiling. But it's the approach here, not the details. Luke's advice is not about being him. His advice is about being you. His second principle is about color. Specifically, don't be afraid to use it. Colour for me has a kind of magical association with it. Like I, I do think colour can really lift our spirits and, and it, it kind of can affect our mood in certain ways. And I love living with colour. It's definitely a, a big part of my approach to interior design. So with colour, is there anything that we should keep in mind? It's sort of how do I choose a bold colour that won't make a room close in on me? And also, you know, for something like wallpaper, how do you know how to choose a pattern that is bold and, and joyful or exciting or whatever, but that won't sort of go up and then you think, oh no, this is going to make me dizzy <laughs> for the rest of my life. Yeah, I mean, I think it does slightly depend on the space. A really graphic, bold pattern that might work really well in a hallway might not work so well in a bedroom. I mean, actually, you know, we just put up this new wallpaper in our hallway, which is very bold. It's a kind of neoclassical, almost like trellis diamond design with like urns mm. and all sorts of bits and pieces but I wouldn't have put that in our bedroom because even for me it would be you know it would be too much but it works yeah. perfectly in a hallway or or and I think it would work well in a kind of small um uh, sort of little bathroom or something yeah so your next principle is mixing big and small is that right yeah I mean I've sort of mentioned before about sort of considering scale and um I think in a room always thinking about furniture it's best to go with oversized furniture rather than smaller pieces mm. like bigger pieces of furniture look better in smaller in, in rooms than going for smaller things i mean there's nothing worse than a 
an armchair that's too small. <laughs> right. And then at the other end of the spectrum, I think the smaller things in a room are other things that really count as well. And my approach to decorating is very layered. And for me, you know, what makes a room really is, is this kind of detritus of life. Mm-hmm. And actually, when people ask me, what's your like favorite thing in your house? What would you save? And it's sort of not really any of the furniture. It's it's actually more the, more the kind of little things, things that I've picked up on holidays, postcards from friends and all of that stuff. Yeah. All the, all the kind of personal things are, are what make, that's what makes a home a home. Luke says if you're really living somewhere, you also can't be obsessed with perfection. Those little things that amass, they'll always be imperfect. And that's okay. Your home can be eccentric and fun. Actually, Luke's third pillar is humor. Don't be too serious about your home. A bit of disorder is a good thing. And in, in, yeah. se- in the sense, you know, my favorite thing is, is um, you know, in the country, if I have loads of friends over, and usually a, a platter will get broken or someone will smash a glass. And I don't know. I mean, obviously not that I want all my things to be broken, but I don't know. I think there's <laughs> something about a house should have a few stains. It should have something chewed by the dog. I love a wonky lampshade. I love pictures hung on the walls that are not quite straight. You know, it's just all that delicious detail I love in a home. And, and, and that's what, for me, is like expresses real personality, I suppose. Yeah. It made me think as I thought about that element, that pillar, I was thinking about one thing that I did when I moved into my new place is I asked a friend of mine to paint me, paint me something very big for my kitchen. And um, she came back with a painting of like a lot of my favorite foods. Oh my God. <laughs> it's amazing. And so there's just this huge, multiple feet across, but there's this huge oyster shell in the middle of it. And it has like two little oysters sitting next to each other <laughs> inside of one shell. I love it. I laugh every time I see it. I'm like, this is so weird. <laughs> no, but it's great. And that's, you know, that is what I mean. It's like, it's embracing the, you know, your, your personality and what you love and kind of expressing that through your interior. And I don't know why, but I was just thinking, you know, Cecil Beaton, who's one of my heroes at his country house, his downstairs loot, he got everyone to um draw around their hand. Oh, cool. On, on the walls as like their kind of signature. Yeah. And I just, you know, that something like that is just so magical and and so unique. And I just think in the same way of you commissioning that painting, like, yeah, having having fun with the places that we live. There's one final thing that Luke wants us to let go of. It's his final principle. And that's the kind of advice that tells you how your home should look. Just get rid of it. Get rid of the pressure of what's in and what's out. Well, I say forget trends and to focus only on things that you love. Often I'm asked, you know, what, what do you think of this trend? Or what do you think is the next trend? And, and I, I, I just, mm. to be honest, I never think about trends because I think it's such a strange way to think about your interior space. Why should you follow what someone else has said is popular and try and recreate that. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Um, And I think it's just, you know, yeah, a bit of a continuation. But really, it's just, I I would say that it's always better to focus on the things that you love and and not worry too much about, does this thing go with this? Or does this match this? And actually just to follow your like gut instinct and your heart, collect the things that you love and and it'll go together. And then at the end of the day, you'll end up with a much more interesting interior than if you just followed what some magazine said somewhere. Luke, thank you so much for taking the time and um, please come back. I'd love to. Thank you for having me. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. 
Next week, we'll have the FT's undercover economist, Tim Harford, on to bring us a story from his podcast, Cautionary Tales. We'll also explore the life of a single song, namely the legendary dancehall hit Bam Bam by Sister Nancy. Please keep in touch. I would love to hear your thoughts on the show and specifically any cultural trends you've been thinking a lot about. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. We're on Twitter at ftweekendpod. And you can find me mostly on Instagram and sometimes on Twitter at Lila Rapp. The FT is still making key Ukraine coverage free to read to keep you informed. You can find that link and links to everything mentioned today in the show notes. I also have the best offers available for you on a subscription to the FT. Those offers are at ft.com slash weekend podcast. Make sure to use that link to get access to those offers. As a new option, the FT has launched a new app called FT Edit, and it's actually very cool. It features eight pieces of in-depth journalism a day, handpicked by senior editors. It costs less than a full subscription, and it's available now for iPhone users. So just search FT Edit in the App Store. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, and here is my talented team. Katya Kamkova is our senior producer, Lulu Smith is our assistant producer, and Breen Turner is our sound engineer, with original music by Metaphor Music. Zoe Sullivan is our contributing producer, Topher Forges is our executive producer, and special thanks go to Cheryl Brumley and Renee Kaplan. Thank you, please take care, and we will find each other again next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.